0: Well, here we are taking our walk through the book of Colossians and understanding the deep theological significance that is taking place within the life of the church. We heard last week uh, about the whole idea of the supremacy of Christ. And if you've got your Bibles, be sure to open up your Bibles so you've got it in front of you so you can actually work your way through the verses and understand how the structure of this section is put together and the difference it makes. I mean, obviously, Paul is absolutely clear that he wants to communicate about the supremacy of Christ. And in those opening verses of verse 15 through to verse Uh, 19 to verse 20, we have what we call a hymn of praise, a poetic utterance, a glory to God as Paul almost poetically and in a form of a hymn declares the greatness of God. Well, what does he declare? Well, it's beautiful. As I've said, he declares the fact that the sun is the image of the invisible God. So the sun is the image of the invisible God and that through him all things were created. Look at that verse 16. And all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things are held together. You can just hear the power of the liturgy. You can hear the power of the words. Now, there's lots of debate about whether these words are hymns and words from liturgy that Paul has taken and adopted in the letter. In other words, he's taken it and he's quoting it, a lot like a preacher today would, would quote Amazing Grace or How Great Thou Art. Or crown him with many crowns and talk about it. Or when I survey the wondrous cross. And you take that and you pop it into your letter. You pop it into your sermon. But, you know, it's hard to find out what the truth is. My opinion is this, that Paul is writing worship because the letter is going to be read out into the life of the church. So you can imagine Paul has done his introduction. Paul has spoken about grace and peace. He's spoken about faith, love, and hope. He's brought his greeting and his edification for Ephesus and all his work and the way that he was speaking and the way that he planted the church. He's brought greetings and now he steps in as Jordan spoke last week at 33. He steps in and starts to declare the supremacy. He is the head of creation. He is the glorious one. He is the one that has come to reconcile us to God. Imagine small group of people in the courtyard on a warm evening. They're in Turkey and they open up. The letter and they start to read it. And as they get to this point, they start to read these words as a liturgical act of worship, declaring the supremacy, declaring that Christ holds the cosmos together, declaring the glory of God, letting the words flow, letting the words feel The area, fill the area with glory and wonder as people listen to Paul's wise words in his prose, as he speaks about the glory and the beauty of God. He is the image of the Lord, the invisible God. All things were created through him in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church in the beginning, the firstborn from amongst the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell within him. You hear the words, you hear the rhythm, you hear the poetry, you hear the praise. These are these are dangerous words. Why? They're dangerous words because who is the head of all things? Who is the supreme ruler? Who is the ruler of the empire? It's Caesar. It's Caesar worship. He was the one that was made into a deity. He was the one that people worshipped in every outpost of the Roman Empire. He is the Lord over the empire, the longest standing Roman Empire. And here a group of Christians are whispering or praising, or shouting out, or repeating the supremacy. No, it's not Caesar, it's Jesus who is Lord. Wow. So you get an image of the, of the rhythm of what is taking place here, and the idea that this is dangerous talk. This is, this is talk that gets you into trouble. These are words that could get you executed. These are sentiments that could upset people in the local towns and the villages when they hear what you are uttering about Jesus Christ. It's worth saying as I begin that actually we all need to be at that point. We all need to be willing to keep uttering and reminding ourselves that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the fulfillment. He is the one supreme. He is the head of everything. This should encourage us, whether a small church in Colossae or whether we're a larger fellowship in Antioch, wherever we might be, we are encouraged because we know who's in control, who's the true emperor, who is the one who is controlling all things. But really, as we move on now into the next verses, I want to take a moment and look at this picture. This is the picture of the Titanic. Well, actually, the lifeboats of the Titanic or the lifeboat. I think this is lifeboat number, number six. When the Titanic was sinking, of course, they loaded the lifeboats up. And they then rowed away from the sinking ship, leaving 1,600 people to die in the cold waters of the North Atlantic. There was a desire to go back through some. A lifeboat number two wanted to go back. But actually, the people in the lifeboat said, no, no, don't be stupid. They're going to tip us over. Lifeboat number five also had the same debate going in because lifeboat number five had 40 spare seats. Lifeboat number six also had space and it was actually the young man who was looking after that lifeboat, the officer that wanted to go back, but the the group stopped. Finally, lifeboat 14 went back because they wanted to go back, but it was an hour later and they only rescued a few people. Many commentators have talked about the sinking of the Titanic as a kind of picture of the depravity and the brokenness of man and of the world, and that the world needs saving. You see, as people were dying, people were afraid and living in their own selfishness, their own fear, their own pain and their own worry that they too would die an expression of original sin an expression of the darkness of man's heart it's difficult to imagine how you and i would respond but what we understand from the message of the titanic is that we live in a world that is sinking into dark seas and that humanity is condemned because of sin and we need a rescuer and one that comes to liberate us and to free us. Finally, Lifeboat 14 went back and they did rescue people. Of course, there, were, there was a preacher on there and a preacher who stood up and shared the good news of God. And in fact, that same preacher put his seven-year-old daughter onto a lifeboat and she lived and she went And she was raised in Halifax. But he went on to pray with people and lead people to Christ. In fact, before the ship actually sank, he took his life jacket off and gave it to another person. Because he said to that person, are you ready to meet God? I don't believe in God. Well, then you take my life jacket. Why? Well, because you're not ready to meet the Saviour. And into those cold waters that preacher went. And the last person he prayed with in those waters actually did survive and went on to document his account of how he was led to the Lord by that Christian on board the Titanic. I think Paul has a strong message here for us. That we're living in a world that is sinking. We're living in a world that is dying. We're living in a world where it's so easy for humans to become selfish. And yet Paul was standing on the decks of the empire and he was declaring the glory of God and declaring the power of Christ. And why does he end up? He ends up with the word reconciliation. For God was pleased. And the message that we understand as we look at verse 19 is that the plan of salvation is that God is pleased to save people. He is pleased to reach out. He is pleased to change lives. He is pleased to rescue people. That God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell within him. Within who? Within Christ. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Notice a number of words here as we look. First of all, the father's pleasure. God was pleased. God loves to reconcile man and God together. That is God's plan. And he declares that all the fullness dwells in him, Christ. That all the fullness of God dwells in Christ. That all the fullness of what Christ did through creation dwells through Christ. He holds everything together. Understand these first verses from 15 that I've read to you almost like Genesis. It has the same Rhythm of Genesis chapter one. It's that same rhythm of "In the beginning was God, and God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out without void." Here we have the sun is is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created. Paul is connecting Genesis one with with. Colossians here, and speaking in the same way of a creative power to fulfill everything and to bring life. And that full revelation, full revelation of God comes through Jesus Christ. The fullness of God is shown in Jesus Christ. Verse 19. Does make me think, though, that if you are empty, if you are lost... If you feel as if you need something within your life, then full life comes through Jesus Christ. Full revelation comes through Jesus Christ. The full sense of the power of God comes through Jesus Christ. Full salvation comes through Jesus Christ. And how does it come through the Lord Jesus Christ? It comes through the blood shed on the cross. It comes through the work of the cross. Do you remember in Exodus chapter 20, verse 21-22, where Moses had been talking to God? He made a sacrifice that was good for, for, for the Lord and declared and took the blood and then took the blood and, th- as it were, blessed the nation of Israel and touched them with the blood of the sacrifice so that they were part of the treaty they were part of the covenant that they were redeemed and they were forgiven and every one of the people in the nation received the touch of the blood to say that a covenant had been made and a treaty in heaven had taken place and this was God's people the Imagery is exactly that, that through Christ's death, his crucifixion, his blood, he has touched us, the new nation of God, and that we are forgiven. And we are right with God through the blood shed on the cross. And you and I are God's nation. And you and I have been touched by the blood that came and we've been forgiven. And the point is, is that we are alienated. Paul says, all of you were alienated by sin. The word alienated means, it means to be so dreadfully alone. It means that you've literally been taken and placed in a place where you are, you cannot be rescued. In the, in the Greek, it's a word that denotes a point of no return, that you are I- isolated. It's a permanent state that you are in. It's an impossibility because you've been taken and placed in a lonely, barren place where there is no hope, where there is no opportunity, where there is just wilderness, where there is just loneliness. Alone. But you were once alienated from God. You were in that place where you were enemies in your minds because of the evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you to Christ's physical body through his death. Presented you wholly in his sight without blemish. See what's going on here. You were once in a wilderness of loneliness. Lost. But through Christ's blood and you believe in on him, you have been reconciled. The parties that were opposed to each other have now come together. And now you have peace and unity with God in your life. There is no blemish. You are free from accusation. In other words, your status has been lifted up. You're a child of God, no more blame, no more blemish, no more shame, no more wrong. The blood of Jesus has come and has made you clean, the blood of Jesus has come on the new nation of the kingdom of God and made you new. You are redeemed. You were alone. You were lost. But now you are a child of God and part of God's kingdom and a citizen of heaven, is what he's saying. And so if you continue in your faith, established and firm, And do not move from the hope held in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Literally, Paul is saying, you know all of this. You know that Christ is supreme. You know that he rules over creation. You know that his death on the cross has given you forgiveness. You know that because of his death, you were once an alien, but now you are welcomed into a relationship with God. And now you have status and rank because you are a child of God. Therefore, don't give in. Don't look back. Don't run away. The brokenness of humanity is there, but you have been redeemed. So he actually literally says, stand firm. In other words, in your will, in your mind, in your heart, in your focus, don't give up the faith. And this is a problem, isn't it? Because so many people today are believing wrong philosophies and ideas. So many people are giving up their faith. So many people are moving away. And Paul says, don't stand, stand firm. Paul then shifts gear at this moment and talks about the ministry. He talks about his calling. He talks about his high calling. He says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking regarding to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. He's saying, I am suffering and I rejoice in what I am suffering. Why is Paul rejoicing? He's now in prison. He's now in Rome. He's going through difficulty. Why is he rejoicing? Well, he knows that when he suffers, he's identifying with Christ. And as he suffers, he knows that the ministry will continue, that he rejoices in his suffering because it will be for the good of the church, that the church will see his perseverance. The church will see his suffering. The church will know how real Christ is, even in the most difficult situations, because even in his suffering, he has the fullness of God that is present with him. And I think sometimes we think about suffering in this way. The church is being persecuted. And if you imagine the church, or you, or a Christian, or Paul, and this is the Roman Empire, and you look at the Roman Empire and you see its power. And the Roman Empire, with its force and its might says, Paul, Christ isn't supreme. No. The emperor is. We persecute you. We hammer you down. Paul, the truth is, your Jesus didn't create anything. And we reject you. And we hammer it down. You see what I am doing? Paul, in your suffering, you've got these little churches. They're useless. We hammer you down. We want to get rid of the church. We want to hammer the church down. We want to say no to the church. We want the supremacy of the, of the emperor. Now, let me ask you a question. The more you hammer the nail into the wood, the deeper the nails goes and the harder it is to get it out. And suffering of the church didn't destroy the church, it just drove the church deeper into the fabric of Roman society. It never stopped it, and even though they they bent it and they hit it, the nail was deeply in. And then what? 300 years later, the whole of the Roman Empire became Christian. The supremacy of Christ, the rule of God, and I am suffering. He says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction. You see this verse here? That is the most debated verse in Colossians. It is actually one of the most debated verses in Christian theology. Because surely Paul's not saying flesh, what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction. How can Christ's affliction be lacking? It's a really interesting verse. Paul, I believe, is not talking about atonement. In other words, there's nothing lacking in the blood and the death and the cross of Jesus. Nothing lacking. He's not talking about that. You have to go back into the context of Colossians and understand the context of Jewish thinking and understanding the depth of the way that the Messiah would come into the world. You see, there was a view, of course, the Messiah came, he died, he was the first, he rose again, and we know that one day the trumpet will sound and Christ will return. And there was a clear thought that there would always be a great suffering before the final return of the Messiah. That was in Jewish thinking about the first return, and here we Paul uses it as an echo saying, my suffering is part of that journey that will eventually bring the return of the Messiah into the world. So he's not taken away from atonement and the work of the cross. He's saying, I have to add this, I have to add my suffering to this journey because by adding my suffering, I am bringing on the coming of the Lord and the coming of the King and the coming of the Messiah. And it's so beautifully constructed that for a Christian Jewish audience, instantly they go, oh yeah, if God's going to do something on a cosmic scale, then there will always be suffering. Before the coming of the Messiah. And that reminds us that even in our own lives, when we suffer and we go through problems, that we know that the union and the closeness of Christ can be brought close to us, as Paul was experiencing. Because he knew that he was a servant who was commissioned. He was called to go. And then he talks about the glory that this mystery that he's called to preach. He's called to evangelize. He's called to reach out. He's called to make a difference. He's called to teach. He's called to proclaim. He's called to guard the church because this gospel is for everybody and it's for Gentiles. And I think sometimes we can forget as a church how absolutely critical it is when we have a calling to minister to this broken world. There's an urgency about Paul, hence the earlier verse about the Messiah and that idea about suffering. And this is all part before the great. There's an urgency. There's a sense of profound glory that God has honored him to be a minister of the word, that God has called him to be a minister of the gospel, that God has called him to ministry as an apostle. And I wish today that even today, That those that are called to preach the word of God and those that are called to full time ministry and those that are called to proclaim and to preach the gospel would again realize that what we are called to do is the most beautiful and most magnificent thing to be able to serve God as Paul served God. Like Wickfield said, Famously, that the greatest and highest calling is to preach the good news of the gospel. As Luther declared the same, as so many others declare that within their writings that we must humble ourselves, even though ministry is tough, even though being a missionary is hard, even though we're hit like a nail into society, to be called by God and to be commissioned is the most beautiful, is the most glorious thing to be able to take the word of God and to proclaim it. And that's why you and I, we should pray for our pastors. We should pray for our missionaries. We should pray for our full-time evangelists. We should pray for all those who are on fire for Jesus, whether they are in the marketplace or whether they are in ministry, whoever is commissioned by God, that we pray that they would know that, that passion, that desire, that fervent, sense of what an honor it is to be called by Jesus for ministry. And I love pastoring. Because it's Gentiles get saved. Because all the nations get touched. Because God changes and works. It's a high thing. It's a glorious, beautiful thing. To be called by Christ and to be given a ministry and to fulfill that ministry. It's hard, but do it with all of your heart. And Paul's talking is reflecting about his own ministry. He says, He is the one we proclaim, we're admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature the aim of paul is that christians would grow up the aim of paul is that they would would grow so much that at their point of their death they have matured to such a point that they are ready to go into the afterlife, into eternity. And the goal of every one of us, you, me, all of us, the goal has to be maturity, maturity, maturity. And we want to preach the word of God, preach the word of God, preach the word of God, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and be alive for Christ. There's a cost we carry as Christians to live like this? Fully mature in Christ. Have you set your life to be fully mature by the time you pass from this life to the next? Are you on the road of maturity? We should all be on that road, my friends. To this end, I strenuously contend. This word. Strangely means I toil to the point of being unbearable. I feel it in my body. I'm working hard. It's the word in the Greek of an athlete. I imagine it like a an ultra runner. And I've done some ultra marathons. And I know that to complete the race, every part of my body aches. Every part of me crumbles. I've got hiccups from exhaustion. I'm crawling literally on the ground after 50 miles of movement. Every part of me aches. So you, if you've ever watched those documentaries of long distance ultra runners and you see the blisters and you see their toes, ooh, not to be say, you see their pain, the athletes You watch the marathon runners at the Olympics, which I love to watch, coming over the line. And they've given everything and their bodies ache and they collapse on the floor. And you know that they have toiled and contended. And I think think the church needs this. I think you and I need to be reminded of this. That there is a toiling aspect to faith to keep pushing, to keep believing, to keep contending and going for it. And so we've been on a journey through these verses. And what have we learned? We've learned that the fullness of revelation and the fullness of salvation dwells in Christ. Why? Verse 19. Why? because of the death and the work of Christ and his blood. And the father rejoices in the message of salvation that brings people home. We are alienated in a lonely lost place, unreachable, but Christ managed to reach us out of our darkness. And we've been made blameless and blemished as have gone. And we are now of high ranking, high standing because we are in the presence of God. We are his children. So stand firm. Set your will, your mind and your focus on the gospel because you have been reconciled. And there is persecution and there is difficulty and there is suffering for the church. But the more, Paul says, I suffer, the more it inspires the church and the more the nail is driven, literally, into the fabric of this world. And that nail is driven. And then he says, don't worry when you suffer because you're almost like you're like The three friends that were thrown into the furnace and burned up. But the Lord was with you in the pain and suffering like he's within me. And it will inspire all to know that the invisible God has shown himself through Jesus. Now go and preach it to the world, to every nation and Gentile, to every people. And you're going to wear yourself out. It's tough. It's hard, but are you up for the challenge of serving Jesus for the rest of your life? I say, amen, I am. Amen, I am. I am up for it. I'm willing to serve Jesus. And now we step into chapter two. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that as we've expounded these verses and these key phrases that Lord, you will help us to commit ourselves to push in, to keep moving, to believe you. And even when it's a toil, even when it's tough, we know the Titanic is sinking and we need those who are willing to declare the glory of God and hand out life jackets. Help us to fulfill our ministry and to realize that Christ has reconciled us to God from alienation. Thank you, Lord. Amen. The Lord bless you. And as you've joined us online, can I encourage you to click and to become part of our online community. Maybe to give and to support all that we're doing as a church and to keep reading Colossians and stepping deeply into it. Thanks for listening.